Yeah. Thank you, Steph. I won't ask whether there are any other Stephs here this morning. <laughs> like the book, Steph. Well read. Hi, everyone. Hello. It's great to be with you. I've been looking forward to this. I always love being with church. Are you a church plant? A church? Whatever. I always like being with churches in the early years as they're starting out. And I particularly like being with churches in the early years as they're starting out in big cities. Because I think God's got a particular passion about getting churches started in big cities like London. And just before we get into the Bible and what I've got to say today, let me just give you three reasons why I think that's so important. The first is because there's lots of people here. So there's just more people to reach. Uh, one church leader used to say, said, Jesus didn't die for clean air, he died for people. So we go where the people are, not where the clean air is. So that's true, isn't it? None of you here live near clean air. I sometimes have to explain to people uh, when I'm preaching outside London, God just made me weird. I like dirty air, no space and high rent. You know, that just seems to be the deal when it comes to living in a big city. So the first reason is God loves being with lots of people. I think that's why the church was birthed in Jerusalem. Because actually every nation on earth came there once a year and it was at that point he decided to pour out his spirit and to reach loads of them. The second reason why I think it's particularly exciting to be starting churches in London right now is there's a move of God going on here. You know that just pure stats, pure numbers, there are now, uh, north of the river is the first place in the UK where church attendance is growing. And that actually, looking around, most of you come into this category, in terms of 20-somethings, or many of you do, in terms of 20-somethings who go to church in the UK, 60% of 20-somethings that go to church in the UK do so in London. That is an extraordinary figure. Six out of ten 20-somethings who go to church do so here. And that is not, I think, because when you come to London, you suddenly become predisposed towards spiritual things. It's because God is doing something. And I know you're finding this, we found people just incredibly open. And even with all the economic challenges and everything else that's going on at the moment, I think that's leading to greater openness. And we've certainly found we have 35% more people on our Alpha course this term than we've ever had before, as people are wanting to know about Jesus. So there's more people here, God is doing something particularly in this city, And thirdly, you can shape a nation from the heart of a city in a way that you can't from anywhere else. Who knows that uh, you can't shape the nation from the suburbs, but you can from the heart of the city. And the reason you can shape a nation from the heart of a city is because the people who live in the heart of a city are the culture shapers, are the culture makers. And I believe it's a very important part of what we're to do is to reach all sorts of people, to minister to poor people, rich people, every sort, but also to look to shape culture as we're about it. I think it would be tragic if one day people hear, there's a move of God in the UK. Revival's broken out, and they sort of hear from other nations, and they decide to fly into London to see what it's like, and they get here. And they walk down the street, they go into the shops, they go to theatre and they say, it's no different from my country. They come into the church meetings, they say, oh, that's different. 
But the billboards, the magazines, the newspapers, the telly, that's all no different. I think we've really missed something if that's the case. Because while God visiting earth starts with changing men and women's hearts, it shouldn't finish there. Because once you're on my heart is changed, it should actually affect the world that we live in as well. And we can do that. We can affect the world literally here in a way that we can't anywhere else. And you've no idea. Some of you are connected to people right now who get to make decisions that change the world. But others of you will find yourself in those sort of places in the years to come. Within... I've not got time to tell the full story now, but within 10 days, no, three days of moving to London, I'm on a rugby, my son's loved rugby. He said, Dad, if we're moving to London, that's cool as long as I can play rugby. So first Sunday, because when you're 10, how you start out matters. So first Sunday in London, we've got him in a rugby side. I'm standing on the sideline watching, and I get chatting to this guy. And he is a man who is spiritually open, and he's a banker. And as I get talking to him, I find that he is a banker for high net worth people. As we talk more, he starts asking me about church planting, he's really interested. Then I find out this man is Roman Abramovich's personal banker. And he's saying to me, he's saying to me, Roman wants to really, does this get podcast? Uh, can be downloaded. Alright. He's saying Roman really wants to strengthen his sort of image in, 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 the, in society said, if you're doing lots of ministry with the poor stuff and you would put something across his desk, I'm sure he would help fund it. So I'm pinching myself. I'm thinking, I've been in London three days. And I'm suddenly finding an opportunity to talk with people who influence lots of things. So who knows where God will take you? And who knows how God will shape your life and shape this church? It's wonderful you've been here, what, 18 months or so? I wonder what you're going to be like in 10 years' time. You won't fit in here, certainly. But think of the adventures and the opportunities for influence that God will give you over these next ten years. I think it's thrilling. This morning I want to talk about faith, and I want to talk about faith in connection with waiting for God. After I graduated from university, I went out to Hong Kong and worked with a lady there called Jackie Pullinger. She had an extraordinary story. When she was 18... She felt God speaking to her and saying, go. And she assumed that if she was being told to go, she needed to go to another nation. This is in the early 60s. And at that point, if you're going to go to another nation, you have to go with a mission organisation, a mission society. So she writes to them all and she says, God's told me to go, can I go with you? And they all write back and they say, we don't take people till they're 25, so God can't have told you to go. God must have told you to wait. And so in desperation, she went to her vicar, who was a vicar in Shoreditch, and he gave her an uncommonly wise and unusual piece of advice. He said to her this. He said, Jackie, if God has told you to go, why don't you buy a ticket on a boat that is going to stop at as many ports as possible as it goes around the world? And pray and ask God which port you should get off at. She thought this was very suspicious advice because she said she thought that missionary work was meant to be costly and this sounded exciting. So she bought a ticket to a boat that was stopping at lots of different ports and when she got to Hong Kong, God spoke to her and told her to get off. So she got off, 
She was a music teacher. She had a violin or a cello or whatever with her. That was about it. She started doing a few music lessons and she found her way to the walled city. Now, the walled city was a few acres of land that had been left off the treaty between China and the UK when China had given Hong Kong to the UK for 100 years. So this bit of land by the airport was Chinese territory surrounded by British territory. As a result, the British police were not allowed in to enforce law and order there. It wasn't theirs. And the Chinese authorities couldn't get to it. So it just became a haven for every sort of illicit and illegal activity you can possibly think of, and a few you can't think of as well. And essentially, it was a slum area, and people built houses. In Hong Kong, typically, people, families live in one room, and these were boxes, one-room boxes, and they literally just jammed them as close as they could to each other over two football pitches, size worth of area, and then up. And they would sort of tilt a bit. And there were 60,000 people living in this area. And you would get into it by squeezing between the houses into these very dark alleyways. And as you would squeeze in, it would become immediately pitch dark. And you would have to be careful because water was dripping from the roof, which was somewhat disconcerting because you could also see the electricity wires that were tapping the power illegally from the surrounding area that were running along the roof with the water dripping from the air conditioning and the... I don't know what. As you're walking along, you're clapping your hands to get the rats to run away from you rather than before you, and you've got to be careful that you don't slip into the open sewers on either side. And Jackie said the first time that she... And Jackie went in there, and she said after she'd been in there and actually moved in, she couldn't understand why everybody didn't want to live there. Because she said that when she went in, she had this vision of this city of darkness. That's literally what the Chinese called it, city of darkness. She had this vision of the city of darkness full of light. And instead of old prostitutes who were no good for prostitution anymore, who would now sit at the side of the road trying to drag males into the brothel, paid now with three shots of heroin and three bowls of rice a day by their keepers. She said instead of these old, battered, emaciated women, she saw brides dressed in virgin white being married. She said that instead of children locked in rooms for up to 16 hours a day so both parents could work in the sweatshops, She saw children who were stimulated and cared for and loved and flowering as a result. Instead of old men who didn't dare go out but stayed in their room all day every day, she saw old men sitting on park benches watching life go by, as maybe old men should have at least some of their time for. Children playing freely. And she said that this vision gripped her so much that was the only place she wanted to be. Now here's the deal. She had to wait a long time for that vision to come about. That said, if I were to take you to the site of the walled city now, it's been knocked down. There is now a playground and a garden where the walled city was. 
The power of the triads was broken in that area because the senior triads came to Christ, bowed the knee to Jesus as a result of Jackie's ministry. Now old men sit on park benches and they literally watch life go by. Now children do play safely in the park and in the playground there. And there are many prostitutes who've had their lives totally redeemed and have been married in virgin white, as they have every right to do when they've encountered the blood of Jesus. But Jackie had to learn in that process, and there's incidentally a little plaque to Jackie Pullinger, OBE, on the wall as well. It's funny, when you go to serve the poor, and in the end, you get lifted up as a result. But what Jackie had to learn in the 20 plus years was how to wait for God and see a vision come about. And I know that many of you have got visions in your hearts. And many of you have got visions for this church as well. And I want to talk about how you wait with faith today. Because the funny thing is, the waiting is maybe the trickiest part of living by faith. Because there's all sorts of things that can go wrong along the way. There's all sorts of things that can take you out of action or take your heart out of action. Because faith gets incubated in your spirit. I remember ringing Terry Virgo some years ago now and saying, Terry, God's spoken to me. I'm to move to London to plant a church. And we talked about it. I said, Terry, I know I've got the promises. I've got faith. And he said, David, he said, you're to feed off that faith every day. And that's what you do when you get a promise. What's God put in your heart? Maybe they're personal promises. Promises for the salvation of a loved one. Promises. Some of you guys at university now, you have got dreams. You don't even know. They're like half promises. Is this God or is this just me being a bit grandiose? But if you could choose, you would love to really give yourself to your area of study and become outstanding in your field to glorify him. There's others of you that have got dreams for areas of ministry. Some of you who want to see people come to Christ. Others of you that want to care for the poor. Others of you maybe that want to be involved in government or business. Just as much in ministry. You look at Daniel or you look at Joseph or you look at Nehemiah. God calls people just to those areas as he much to the church. We will not see this nation changed if everybody goes full time, by the way. We need people called in every area. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to Genesis chapter 18. Alright, we need to be careful this morning for me to stay on message, otherwise you're going to get three sermons, not one. We're going to be here a while. Genesis 18. Okay, here's the deal. Most of you are familiar with the story. Abraham and Sarah, Abraham gets these promises. And essentially what God tells Abraham is, I am going to so bless you that every nation in the world will receive something of my blessing. 
So I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you a mighty nation, and out of you you'll bless the nations of the world. Now obviously if someone is going to do that, he needs a family, he needs a people, he needs a son to start that off. The problem was, Sarah was barren. Abraham and Sarah could not have children. So God gives Abraham these extraordinary, remarkable promises and then keeps him waiting 24 years. 24 years. Now I want to... Um, and He keeps him waiting 13 years and then Abraham tries to make it happen himself. Sarah says to him, why don't you sleep with your concubine, which was a somewhat accepted practice in that day, and we'll have that child. Hagar became pregnant. She had Ishmael. And then she learnt to needle Sarah in such a way, you're the one who couldn't have a child. Now, he, Abraham, has got my child. So much so that Sarah couldn't stand it any longer. She said to Abraham, get them out of here. And after that, for 11 years, Scripture goes silent. Now, any time God stops speaking, it is a sign of judgment. And when he speaks, it's a sign of blessing. And so, it was, so it's a warning to us. Listen, if you've got promises, don't try and make them happen yourself. After 11 years, this happens. Genesis 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Marmah while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. And Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I found favour in your eyes, my Lord, don't pass your servant by. But let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. And let me get you something to eat, so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you've come to your servant. Very well, they said. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seers of fine flour, knead it and bake some bread. And then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before him. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where's your wife Sarah, they asked him. There in the tent, he said. And then the Lord said, I'll surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? And then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I'll return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. So Abraham is sitting at siesta time outside his tent, three guys come past. As would happen in any ancient Near Eastern culture, it is hospitality demands, culture demands that he welcomes them, which he does. He asks them to come and have a meal. They're persuaded to do that, and as they sit eating, suddenly Abraham realises these aren't just passers-by, but these are messengers from the Lord. And they prophesy to him, and they say, within 12 months, the promises you've been waiting 23 years for are are going to come true. Suddenly it's all going to happen. And Sarah's response, we're told, was to laugh. It was not the laugh of faith. And I want to just draw out of this briefly three lessons. A lesson that 
Um, a lesson that Abraham has had to learn in the 11 years since trying to make things happen with Hagar. A lesson that Sarah still has to learn, and then a lesson that they both have to learn together. Three lessons, one for, one for the guy, one for the girl, and one for both of them. This is an equal opportunity sermon. <laughs> Abraham, what has he learnt over the last 11 years? I want to suggest this. Abraham has learnt that whilst he waits, he gives everything. That whilst he waits, he gives everything all of his energy and ability to whatever he finds God gives him to do as worship to him. You certainly see this by the way he's just, he welcomes the guests. And bear in mind, this man is 99 years old and it is the heat of the day. I was once out in in Italy during a heat wave and we immediately instituted with the kids a sort of siesta. I love Mediterranean culture, don't you? Isn't the siesta the most wonderful invention ever and so thank you and um, so we did that and I remember we would I would essentially I would get lunch I'd put food together we'd eat and then Philippa would clear up that was Philippa's my wife that was just the way we did it and we'd sort of get into this game you know I'd just be settling down for my siesta and the call would come every day David we've run out of water Did you go and get some water? Now, all I can say is the heart was willing. (laughs) But none of the rest of my body wanted to move. Now, that was me at fit young age, not at 99. Now, watch the way that Abraham goes. Watch the speed with which he moves. In verse 2, we're told he hurries to the three men. He persuades them to stay. Then in verse 6, you think, okay, he's got them now. Verse 6, we're told he hurries to Sarah and tells her to be quick about baking the bread. Okay, so now he's got the people, he's got them food coming, you think, okay, 99-year-old, slow down. He needs to go and get the meat. The animals are away from the tents. How does he travel? We're told he runs. And if you were to read these verses in the Hebrew, out loud, you would literally, you would do so with a staccato sense. In other words, these are put together with this sense of rush and hurry. Abraham, at 99, is moving like grease lightning. He's giving his all. There is no withholding in this man. Let me ask you a question. Do you give yourself energetically to whatever you have God gives you to do in a day? Or is there anything about you which thinks... David, I'm waiting for God. When the big thing comes, when my call appears, when the promises start to come over the horizon, I'll give everything. But till then, I've just got to pace myself. Abraham wasn't like that. He didn't know that this was the day when he was going to be told, 12 months, Abraham, it all starts moving. But he gives himself, not only with his physical energy, but with the generosity of his heart. The amount of flour that he gets Sarah to use for the, for the bread would be enough to feed a small platoon of troops, not just three individuals. Then did you notice the animal that he chooses? Goat or chicken would have been fine. But did you notice what he went for? Fillet steak. Abraham is essentially saying this. God, 
all the resources you have given me, I will use to worship you. And I want to encourage you all that as you wait for God, you give your all to him. And you give your all in a number of different ways. Firstly, in your job or in your studies. Are you known for giving everything? It's my conviction that Christians should actually be the best employees and the best students. Not necessarily the brightest. Depends what equipment the Lord's given you. (laughs) But that you give everything. Here's the thing. You can play tomorrow however you want. You can be lethargic and passive, or you can be like Abraham. The funny thing is, if you give yourself like Abraham, you're likely to end the day with more energy than if you spend the whole day conserving it. Have you noticed that? That you can be lethargic and passive. You feel tired at the end of the day as a result. How do you give yourself in whatever is the focus of your main working hours, raising children, studying, Work, uh, earning money or whatever it is. Secondly, how about in relationships? That's the bit that you typically do at the end of the day when you finish the day job. And I think it's tragic how often the newspaper or the television becomes more engaging than the people we love at the end of the day. Because relationships require energy too. There was one uh, American president who never got this, Calvin Coolidge, not one of the most famous of American presidents. He insisted on dining out in society virtually every night. When asked why, because he would never speak when he was out, and you wouldn't, you know, people sort of wanted, avoided sitting next to him. So when asked why he did it, he said, well, you've got to eat somewhere. When one hostess invited him and she opened the door to welcome him to her party, she said... I have a bet with someone tonight that I can make you speak more than three words. You know what he said? You lose. And he didn't say another word. (laughs) She did get her own back, actually, when he died. Because when she heard the news that he had died, she said, how can anyone tell? (laughs) But it becomes a caricature, guys particularly, gentlemen, bit of a caricature, a big caricature. Do you give yourself in relationships? Do you let people know you? Is connecting with others, loving them, bringing the strength God has given you as a blessing to relationships? Is that something you do? We're not to withhold in our job, we're not to withhold in relationships, and of course we're not to withhold in our service to the church. I planted a church in Birmingham some years ago now, And we had 17 of us in the first meeting, and there were two guys who were business guys in their mid-late 30s. Both had been very successful. They worked very long hours. There was a limited amount that they could give to the church in terms of time. I never asked them or spoke to them about this at all, but essentially the attitude they took was this. David, if it's money that the church needs, don't worry, it's sorted. Now, you can imagine what an enormous blessing that was in the first year or two years of the church. It's sorted. Now, you may not have money, 
But what do you have which you can give in that way? I remember shortly after we started our church meetings uh, initially in Covent Garden, we realised just how much work getting set up every Sunday was going to be. And I remember taking five guys out, we went out and got a pizza after an evening meeting, and we, I just presented the challenge to them. And I, I, will, I'm, I may never forget their response. There was no talk around the table of, is this too much hard work? Would I have the energy or could I give? It was essentially just a given. These guys said, whatever it takes, we'll do it. Because there's something so important here. The salvation of many and the glory of God, which is what the existence and the future of the local church is all about. So I want to encourage you guys, as you wait for God, it was Disraeli, the British Prime Minister, who said, uh, essentially something like the secret of a life is for a man to be ready when his time comes. Now, to be ready for your time, to be ready when God brings promises about for you, means you've got to be active in the meantime. And you've got to engage in the preparatory uh, process. And just in case you think I'm pushing this a little far in this passage, there are three little pointers here which show that as it was written that the writer was trying to show that this Abraham was treating everything as worship to God. When the three men come, we're told Abraham bows down. Now that word is only ever used at bow for bowing to God, apart from in this one place. So as he's welcoming people in, he's saying, I'm not just looking at you, I'm looking at the God beyond you, and I'm welcoming you as if you were the Lord. I'm using my hospitality as worship. Then the flour, the best wheat flour that Abraham tells Sarah to use for the cooking, becomes the flour that is used for the cereal offering. Essentially an offering which says, God, you've given me everything and here I want to return it to you. Another sign of worship. And then Abraham's choice of meat was a choice tender calf, which is what you had to present before God in the temple and anticipated a choice tender lamb that was to come, that was to be given for us. And so you see worship, just hints at worship right the way through this passage. You're giving your best to God, first thing. Second thing, Sarah. She had a lesson still to learn. Because, as we've already noticed, when she laughed, it was not a laugh of faith, it was a laugh of unbelief. And she had been waiting for a baby for a very long time. And that, of course, would have been a massive challenge for her. In Proverbs it says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And this is part of the battle, while you're waiting for God, is learning to to allow the heart to stay full of faith and not become sick. For Sarah, you imagine what it must have been like, month after month of heartbreaking disappointment, thinking, is this the month God is going to give me a child? No. Oh well. Maybe next month. I wonder whether if we got to look in Sarah's prayer journal, we'd have seen something like this in the end. God, how much more of this do you think a woman can bear? You give me these promises, and then you take me on this roller coaster ride, and don't deliver. And then, of course, she would have watched her body change. Now we're told she's past childbearing age. Her body would have changed. She would have realised this body that once 
was made to bear children, now cannot bear children. And so her heart became sick. And I want to encourage you and warn you to look after your hearts and to keep them healthy. Three different ways that sickness can get in. The first is cynicism. After a while of believing with nothing happening, your heart becomes a little negative. First it affects what we're believing God for ourselves. Then we silently and quietly write off other people's steps of faith and have no expectation for them either. And if you are to see the promises, Revelation Church, that God has for you as a church or as individuals, you must fight cynicism. Everyone who's learnt to see their promises come about, God's promises come about, has learnt this. William Wilberforce would be a striking example. You know, when he went into the House of Commons, there had been an evangelical MP who stood up shortly before with a Bible. And he said, this, the laws of this land should be ruled by this book. And he was laughed into, you know, laughed out of court. Wilberforce... It took Wilberforce 19 years, many of you know the stories, 12 attempts at laying down a motion and 19 years before slavery was made illegal. And you would have thought after 19 years that he'd have, you know, put his feet up. But instead of doing that, he said, slavery doesn't just need to be illegal, but all those who are currently in slavery need to be set free. And he gave the rest of his life for that, another 19 years. 38 years he gave. And as, of course, many of you know, the abolition of slavery bill, the freeing of all slaves was passed three days before he died. I want to encourage you, fight cynicism. Hate cynicism. Watch out for cynicism. Watch out in each other's lives and language for cynicism. Secondly, passivity. At some point, we can give up trying. Maybe we go through the motions, but just not with the same commitment and energy. You think it must have been like that for Sarah at some point in time? You think she said to Abraham one day, I just don't want to try this month. I can't cope with the disappointment anymore. Let's just take a pass. It's very important that we don't become passive. A good number of you will know uh, Mike Hewitt, who pastors Church of the City in the East End. <laughs> He's checking stuff for still away. <laughs> and uh, I, if you ever get time with Mike, just get him to tell you some of his miracle stories. God uses him in the most extraordinary ways. And one of the things that I'm often challenged by with Mike is the fact that he refuses to go into passivity. He was telling me of a new convert that they had in the church who rang him on a Monday. Now for Mike, Mike said, Monday is my day off. And he said, I keep it so that I'm actually alive and fresh the rest of the week. I guard my Mondays like mad. He said, the only thing that I let invade my Mondays is death. He said, death won't wait for Tuesday, so if someone's dying, I'll respond. (laughs) So this new convert calls him and he says, Mike, he says, my dad is dying, he's in hospital. Can you come and visit him and pray for him? Mike says, okay, gets in the car, and, you know, he's sort of, here's what he says to God. He says, God, this is my day off. 
<laughs> if I'm going to the hospital on my day off, I am believing you to break in. And as he drove, he felt God say, if you will pray for the man, I will heal him. And he went in to the hospital, and he went in, and the new convert, I think his name was Frank, if I remember rightly, was, uh, had just been told by the doctors, you'd better go up and see your dad and say goodbye. He's about to go. So Mike walks in, Frank says, I've got to go and see my dad. Mike says, I'll come with you. He says, you've got to be joking. He said, my dad hates Christians. If you come up right now and offer to pray for him, that could be enough to finish him off. <laughs> and Mike, in the end, has to say to Frank, he says, Frank, if I pray for your dad, he will be healed. You've got to let me come. Frank takes him up. Dad, this is my friend Mike. He's from the church. He'd like to pray with you. Do you mind? Dad's got oxygen mask on, can't talk. He just nods his head. Mike puts his hands on him. Mike prays for him and then looks him in the eyes and he says, I will see you when you get out of hospital. It's Monday. Wednesday, the man is released from hospital fully healthy. (laughs) Now what's happened? Wonderful, eh? Mike has learned not to become passive. There were any number of points during that. He could have got in the car, put his arm around Frank, prayed for the dad and shot out again. But he pushed in first. He believed God. And then he insisted at several different points as he went along. I want to encourage you to believe him and not to become passive. And thirdly, Sarah had to learn not to become distracted. It would have been very easy. 24 years of waiting for a child, she had to harness that energy. She had to push that somewhere else. Maybe the nieces and nephews. She was in an extended family. Maybe she gave her time to them. And maybe she got to a point where she said, these, these guys are great. They spend all their time with me. Mum's just happy to have a bit of time and space. And this satisfies me. Enormous. Maybe I won't, you know, maybe I don't need my own. We have to watch that the things that God has put in us, that we're to bring about, that we don't, whilst we're waiting, find other things that would satisfy instead. Sometimes I see a Christian coming towards me and I know what we're going to talk about before we've even started. The reason being, that's what we talked about last time and the time before and the time before that. In fact, sometimes you think, do you think about anything else? And it's like they get one part of scripture and that becomes the sole focus. Do you know what I mean? None of you have ever met anybody like this. (laughs) Sometimes I think... I mean, do you still love Jesus and his book? Or have you got so focused on this that now that gives you the adrenaline rush and everything else? And once you were waiting for a promise and now you've got distracted by something that appears good but is actually an enemy of the best. And so we need to be careful not to become distracted by lots of good things which can take away the best. So Sarah had to fight cynicism, fight, dis- fight passivity, and fight distraction. Abraham had to give his all. What did they have to learn together? They had to learn to bet together to be strengthened in their faith. It was, if we had time, we'd turn to Romans 4, which acts as a commentary at this point in time on what happened with Abraham and Sarah. And we're told that Abraham looked at his body and it was as good as dead. And then he believed God. 
It's one of my favourite passages in the whole of Scripture. But here's what I think Abraham learned at that point in time. Don't look at the circumstances, look at what God says. Now, if you are going to be a church that functions by faith, you have to learn this lesson. You have to learn this lesson. You have to learn to look at what God is saying. Some of you have heard this story, but I'm, I'll share it with you anyway, because I think it so works. You understand London. This, as we were trying to gather a team to start a church, and we'd live, we lived outside London, and we're busy trying to find people from outside London who would move in. I remember I called some friends of mine. Some of you will know Tim and Jackie Frisbee. They were down in Brighton. I called them. I said, Tim, we're moving to London. We'd like you to pray and ask God whether he wants you to come as well. Now, Tim was at the time about to do his third year at Brighton Uni. Jackie had just graduated and was in her first job. So they're, you know, they're up to here in student debt and they're not earning a lot of money. And I say to Tim, Tim, do not ask the question, how are you going to afford this? Just ask the question right now. I know your body's as good as dead. Ask the question, what does God want? And so a week later, my phone goes, it's Tim. Dave, we've prayed. We're coming. I said, great news. I said, Tim, how are you going to do it? He said, you told me not to ask that question. I said, well, Tim, now we've got to ask that question. About a week later, Jackie, who's working for a small advertising agency in Rygate and Redhill, gets a call from a recruitment agency. They say, we've got a client who would, who's been watching you and would like to meet you. It was the third largest advertising agency in the UK and their head offices were in Googe Street, not far from Tottenham Court Tube. And they said, we'd like you to come up Thursday evening for a chat. So she went up for a chat, and it was a chat. They didn't ask her a single question in the half an hour uh, discussion. The guy just told her all about the job. And he had an offer letter on the table. At the end of half an hour, he turned the offer letter around, slid it across the table, and he said, now he said, I've just got one question to ask you. How much do we need to pay you in order for you to take the job? It's deeply unfair, isn't it? I've never been asked that question like that. So Tim's on the phone again. We're coming. What had happened? They'd heard God, and then they'd not allowed their body, though good is dead, to be put off. And God has taught Philip and I this lesson over and over and over again. It just makes me nervous about how he'll teach it to us next often with house moves for us. When we moved to Birmingham to plant a church, we, it was a real battle to get the house sold, real battle to get there. In the end, we said, we're just going to pick a date and we're going then. And we felt spiritually that was just important. So we told the children's schools they're leaving Birmingham. We said, they're coming on this date. All got lined up. Everything was going fine. And then our buyer started getting slow, passive. I don't know. Just got to the Friday, we were moving on the Monday, got to the Friday, and we'd not exchanged. So, you know, legally there was no, nothing binding. And I'm there with the removal van guys on the Friday evening. And they say, Mr. Stroud, we don't know how it's got this far, but you have yet to give us a cheque. And we need not just a deposit now, we need all the money. I said, well, it's a bit difficult. 
I said, we might be going Monday, we might not. And they said, oh, okay. They said, Mr. Stroud, we've been here before. You need to know this always ends in tears. Don't do it. And I remember, I, but I couldn't get peace about leaving, leaving them without giving them the cheque. I, I went out the office and called Philippa. It was, I remember the amount of money it was, and it was the last, it was the last money we had. And I said, I think, I think I should give them the money. But we don't have any more after that. We're done. And she said, uh, she said, go for it. You go for it. I've never felt more like Abraham in my life as I wrote that check and gave it to them. I'd like to tell you we had a faith-filled weekend. <laughs> it would be slightly misleading to tell you that. <laughs> Seven o'clock Monday morning, the, arrival, the guys arrive and start packing the van. Nine o'clock, we're on the phone, as you can imagine, just you know, straight there, trying to make everything happen. And I've got solicitor coming back to me, I've got the estate agent, we can't find your buyer anywhere. She's not answering her phone. 11 o'clock comes. Mr. Stroud, time to go to Birmingham. So, we get in the car, strap the children into their car seats. Philippa turns out and says to the children, do you know, she said, there are times when you move to a house, but you don't actually sleep there on the first night. (laughs) We're going up the motorway, and the phone goes, and it's actually, Mr. Stroud, we found your buyer. She will exchange and complete today if you will reduce the price by £1,000. And actually, we'd been given £1,000 the night before. So I just said, you do what you have to negotiate, but if you need, you know, we can go the whole way if we need to. And uh, we kept going. Ten minutes before the front door of the house we were hoping to buy, the phone went again. Mr. Stroud, you'll be pleased to know you have just exchanged and completed. The house is yours. Now... It was one of those times of incredible emotion, you know, depth of emotion over that weekend and that day. And it's often at times of emotion like that that God works something deep into your heart. And I remember I put the phone down, everyone in the car cheered, <laughs> wet, <laughs> generally felt very relieved indeed. And I then Philippa said, she said to me, she said, you know, I feel the Lord is saying this, as you have moved by faith, Now you're to do everything in your ministry by faith. I can tell you that's been one of the most important lessons that we've learned. And it was a lesson that Abraham and Sarah had to learn right then. That you don't start by looking at your body. You start by saying, Lord, what do you want? Just as as Joshua had to. When God said, I've given you Jericho into your hands. And he's looking at it and it's all walled up and there's army inside. He could have said, oh no, you haven't. But God does it in the heavens and then you have to go and get it on earth and make it happen. Brothers and sisters, God wants to do that for many of you. For some of you, quickly, there's things that will come to you quickly. For many of you, there's a journey that you're on. As you destroy unbelief and you grow in faith by giving yourself wholeheartedly in everything that you've got to give yourself in, that God gives you to do. In fighting cynicism, passivity and distraction... And in growing in faith by not looking at the impossibilities of the situation, but believing God. Let's stand, shall we, together?